You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, MD, Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Toves. Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Legends, Kenway, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. Last time, we left Thomas Pound and the crew of the Good Speed in the dungeons of Boston. Today, their piratical depredations will crash headfirst into the civilized world. This is Episode 170, Thomas Pound, Part 3. I avoided the urge to do an episode on plague in recent months. I considered talking about... Samuel Pepys' Chronicle of the Plague in London, and Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. I could have talked about sickness on ships. It's, you get the idea. I didn't do it, though. That kind of stuff for a while was just everywhere. It was starting to stress me out. I didn't want to add to that kind of noise, but I mention this because now that we know what a pandemic is like, we know that it's best to avoid certain spaces and certain activities. Of course, the most difficult thing about this particular plague is that it's invisible. I mean, wouldn't it be easier if you could see the symptoms? Say, huge, gross, fluid-filled bumps covering the skin. That could, of course, signify any number of afflictions. Bubonic plague, for example, or adolescence. Most present in our collective memory, though, is smallpox. Smallpox was terrible. Until we eradicated it, it was truly terrifying. But it was also easy to spot. A smallpox outbreak was obvious and definitely to be avoided by any sensible human being. So picture this. You are a down-on-your-luck sailor in 1689 Boston. 
It's November, and you're staring down the barrel of yet another long, cold, awful Massachusetts winter. Beyond that, there is only one topic of conversation in every public house in town. All night, every night, all anyone seems to be talking about is this pirate, Thomas Pound. He used to be a Navy man, you know, that kind of thing, but right now he's in jail, just up the street. He and his crew are awaiting trial for piracy. But to a certain segment of the population, it's more than that. I mean, Thomas Pound really went for it, man. We can imagine a certain type of sailor toasting the pirates for sticking it to the man, only to be confronted by stiff colonials in pressed coats and a tavern-wide brawl breaks out. Now, you're probably familiar with the idea of copycat killers. It's the sort of thing we see with serial killers. Some deranged individual will copy a particular serial killer's style, sometimes while that killer is still on the loose and sometimes long after they've been put away. Now, the motivations for copycat killers are a topic that are for much more insightful people than myself. But there is a similar phenomenon in piracy. I think the motivations, though, are different. I mean, there are pirates all throughout this story that are violent psychopaths obsessed with glory, but most pirates didn't kill people for the act of killing people. It was a means to an end. Copycat pirates weren't copying the killing for the sake of killing. They were in it for the same ends as the original, usually to get rich and retire as soon as possible. Enter the notorious pirate mastermind, William Coward. William Coward was probably an associate of Thomas Pound. He was a sailor on board the Sally Rose, the HMS Rose, back when Thomas Pound was her captain. It makes one wonder why William Coward didn't go with Pound when the pirates embarked on their voyage. Most of the sailors on board the HMS Rose weren't invited. Many of them didn't even know about the plan. Coward was probably among those, but it looks very much like if he had been given the opportunity, he would have gone. Because, well, in November of 1689, William Coward and a small crew of notorious buccaneers hatched their plan. That's only a few weeks after Thomas Pound and Goodspeed were defeated. That happened back in October. Here in November, just a few weeks later, William Coward and his friends took a boat out into Boston Harbor to the catch Eleanor. Eleanor had been just sitting there for some weeks, like a fat little prize. She was just begging to be captured, except for one little detail. The captain of the Eleanor, William Shortrig, along with most of her crew, had a rampant case of smallpox. She was a quarantine ship, a plague ship. Her crew was sick, really sick. That's why I mentioned this recent unpleasantness we've all been living through. I mean, what would you do if you rolled up on a group of people that were all hacking their lungs out? Would you stick around? What if it was a ship of people all obviously covered in smallpox? Would you, you know, hang out? Assuming that you're a decent human being, would you in that situation put those people ashore where all of the innocent and healthy men and women and children are? 
I'd like to hope that the answer is no. Would you, in that situation, shack up in the living space of these people who had been suffering smallpox for the past few weeks? Would you eat their food and drink their water? Most sensible people would answer no. Germ theory, as we understand it today, was still in its infancy. Lens technology, like the telescope and the microscope and, of course, the spyglass, were all being developed right here at this point. But even so, even though germ theory wasn't fully fleshed out, it's not like people didn't understand the concept of spreading disease and the need for quarantine. They'd been living through bubonic plagues for centuries now. Stealing this particular ship was really, really stupid. But it was easy. The crew was way too sick to defend themselves or their ship. They put up no resistance when William Coward put them ashore and sailed away with the Eleanor for his long and glorious pirate career. Did I... did I sell it? Did I sound believable? William Coward was not going to have a long and glorious pirate career. His biggest mistake, beyond stealing a ship that had rampant smallpox on board, was doing so in a social climate that was gripped with pirate fever. Thomas Pound was all the news. Pirates were the big threat. Not to mention all of those ships that had been mobilized to capture an actually competent pirate captain like Thomas Pound were still there. This was just a couple of weeks later. William Coward and his crew of notorious buccaneers were captured like two days later. I intended, in my outline, to do a whole episode on William Coward. When I find out about a pirate with which I have previously been unfamiliar, I usually plan on digging into the meat of their story, but there is no meat here. Aside from stealing this catch, he didn't do anything, and he was captured with hardly a fight. Partly because some of his men had begun to show signs of smallpox. I would note, though, since it piqued my curiosity that the surname Coward, although it is spelled C-O-W-A-R-D, is actually just a modification of cow herd. Like shepherd means sheep herder. The name Coward means cow herder. Cowardice is a whole different etymology that has nothing to do with cows or herds. William Coward, though, is not a pirate of any particular note, aside from his proximity to Thomas Pound. And to be honest, we've passed by dozens, maybe even hundreds, of equally unsuccessful pirates. Men and women of no notoriety whatsoever. However, here in Boston, in 1689 to 1690, even pitiful pirates were all the news. The next few weeks are going to concern us in large part with law and justice in the North American colonial world. It's an integral part of the pirate story. The courtroom antics of many a pirate are the defining moment of their entire career. These trials usually took place in one of three locales, either in Port Royal, or later Kingston, or in London, or in Boston. We're going to look at Boston through three different trials, but we're beginning here in January 1690 with the trial of Thomas Pound, William Coward, and their respective crews. To begin, let's look at where they were being held, the Boston Jail. The Old Stone Jail, usually spelled G-A-O-L, but pronounced jail, 
was an institution of utmost fear to pirates and smugglers and Jacobites, and of course, most notorious and infamous of all, a bunch of innocent teenage girls accused of Congress with the Beast. We'll get to them later on. The foundation of the jail was built back in 1632, but little more than a wooden stockade. Throughout the 1680s, it was renovated and turned into the new stone jail. The Annals of King's Chapel, published in 1900, describes the jail using contemporary 1689 sources. It writes, quote, The old stone jail on Prison Lane had outer walls of stone three feet thick. Its unglazed windows barred with iron, the cells partitioned off with plank, the doors covered with iron spikes, the passageways like the dark valley of the shadow of death. End quote. That sounds like my worst dungeon nightmare. You can, today, go see the keys that were used for the cells back in 1689 in Boston. There were huge iron keys, 18 inches long, to facilitate the uncommonly thick wooden doors covered in iron spikes. These sources on the old stone jail exist because of popular interest at the time in this trial of the pirates. The broadsheets there in Boston were feeding a population hungry for any scrap of information on Thomas Pound and the pirates. They sent artists and journalists into the old stone jail to show what life was like for the men rotting away in their cells. Almost a century later, during the American Revolution in 1780, a Bostonian named Daniel Fowle wrote of the old stone jail, quote, If there was any such thing as a hell upon earth, I think this place is the nearest resemblance of any I can conceive. End quote. Dark, wet, and brutal, the Boston jail sounds awful. Exactly the kind of place that pirates deserved to be dropped in the eyes of the good people of Boston. But it was worse than all that. We might picture when we think about pirates languishing away in jail, Jack Sparrow in a Port Royal cell being incredibly bored. But these pirates were in a really rough state. They'd just lost a naval engagement that was pretty brutal. Good speed traded musket volleys with Mary for the better part of a day at pretty close range. I'll warn you, this is going to get a little bit graphic and kind of gross. Most of the pirates' wounds, the life-threatening wounds at least, were tended back in Rhode Island in the immediate aftermath of the battle. But this is 17th century medicine. We just mentioned how germ theory wasn't exactly yet a thing. Good doctors, continental doctors, still birthed babies immediately after handling cadavers, without washing their hands in the middle. These colonial sawbones were not the best doctors, and likely even if they were, they didn't pay too much attention to the comfort of the pirates, or their safety. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. 
So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Everybody, shush. William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro. Box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Thomas Pound had been shot in the side of the torso and then several times hit in the arm. The bullets were removed, and the surgeon said he had, quote, several bones taken out. Thomas Johnston, the limping privateer, lost the lower half of his jaw. It was ripped through by a musket ball and removed by a surgeon. And there he was, alive, in that hell on earth of a jail. Do you recall before Thomas Pound captured Thomas Hawkins' ship, when it was still just a friendly fishing voyage, do you recall when one of the pirates said, Ah, here they are. And then a bunch of men clambered aboard. One of those men was a gunsmith out of Boston. He brought all the guns that the pirates would go on to use. His name was Richard Griffin. During the battle, Richard Griffin took a musket ball to the head, it entered through his left ear and out of his left eye. That's a lead, red-hot musket ball tearing through his head. And he was alive and missing an eye at the trial. A man named Eliezer Buck was shot seven times. Many of those musket balls tore through both of his arms and shattered his bone. John Sicadam was shot through both legs, and one of those legs had to be amputated. Yes, he would receive a peg leg. We've got eye patches, we've got peg legs, we've got hook hands. Sometimes at the trial, sometimes later in life. But keep that in mind. Piracy, sailing in general, was a dangerous line of work, and often men were injured on the job. But pirates in particular have that reputation largely because when they were in the public eye was on trial which usually happened shortly after a naval battle. The injured pirates that are so much a part of our collective cultural imagination were only injured a few days prior in a climactic naval battle. And I could continue on with that list. William Warren had a bullet lodged in his skull and lived to go to the trial with that bullet in his head. The list goes on and on. But then there were the pirates who were terribly injured and taken to the Old Stone Jail, but that died in custody. I'd like to linger on that for a moment. Those who died in battle were often lucky compared to those who were injured and had to undergo the subpar surgeries. And oftentimes, yes, 
Even though germ theory wasn't established yet, doctors did know to at least clean the wounds and use clean rags, but it's not like those jail cells were sanitized hospital rooms. These pirates were left to rot in the hellish cells of the jail with rats and roaches and oftentimes their own waste nearby. I could use words in describing their condition like pus and oozing and red and pulsating, but I won't. It was gross. Those men were injured, and then infected, and then they died. The sailors that, the honest sailors, that went out to confront the pirates were treated better, but they were still injured in the battle, and many of them horribly suffered and died. In the weeks that the pirates languished away in jail, the court appraised the cargo of the good speed. It was worth a decent amount, but most of the value was in tackle and guns and supplies. The Council of Massachusetts, contrary to what we might expect, did not return the ship or her cargo. The pirated goods aboard were seized and sold to fund a widows and orphans fund for the women and children left behind by the battle, including the wife and children of Captain Pease, whose family was said to be destitute. The good speed, though, was kept there in Boston Harbor. It was a good ship outfitted for war and... As we should remember, war was looming. Soon enough, on the 13th of January, 1690, the day of the trial arrived. The trial was an event for the people of New England. Boston was packed with people from all over the region, some from as far away as Virginia and even Jamaica. The militia was out in force in case the people got a little too rowdy. Now, the pirates would not be tried at the old state house. That wouldn't be built for another 23 years. Instead, they used the council chambers just down the road from the jail. Of the crew of some 30 pirates of the good speed, seven died either in the battle or before reaching the jail there at Boston, and four died while in custody. Of the remaining 19, only four of them were free from injury. There was Thomas Hawkins, who was not present in the battle. Remember, he abandoned them before the fight. There was the doctor, who we've discussed at some length, who didn't take part in the fighting. He hid below decks, and after the battle helped treat the men of both sides. And then there were the two ship's boys, including the captive taken because he could speak French. They were hiding with the doctor below decks. That whole motley crew of sailors and soldiers and pirates were marched from the jail through the center of Boston. William Coward and his small crew were there as well. Now, while the crew of the Good Speed suffered missing legs and missing hands and holes in their heads and bullets lodged in their skulls and jaws that just weren't there anymore, their state was probably preferable, in the eyes of many in the crowd, to William Coward and his men. Over the past few weeks, they had begun to show signs of as is to be expected, smallpox. If you were a member of that crowd, seeing the pain and suffering that a life of piracy is to promise, would you choose to be a pirate? I think it would turn many people off from the lifestyle, yet, as we will see in the future, some of those people did. Still, though, the crowd was anti-pirate. They hurled insults and stones and rotten fruit and vegetables at the men who were marched through the town. But they safely reached the courthouse. The pirates had a jury of their peers.
Thus, the judges and magistrates, and there were three of them, sat on a raised dais presiding over the trial. There were people packing the courtroom, and a strange number of them appeared to be women, all of them wearing their Sunday best. This wasn't terribly out of the ordinary, but worth note. The trial was not particularly long or particularly complicated. The only really interesting thing I'd like to make note of is the defense's case for the pirates who abandoned their post at Fort Loyal in Falmouth, Maine. Remember those soldiers who the doctor lured away to the pirates? Well, the defense argued that they were honest soldiers who signed up to defend the good people of New England. But they were upset at their treatment. This was not the fault of any of the good men present, you understand. It was the fault of the vile old governor of the province of New England, Edmund Andros. The treatment of these militiamen in his service was abysmal, and anyone could understand that. He was a terrible governor, remember? Remember when we all rose up to overthrow his dictatorial rule? Well, that's why these men were seduced away by the pirate masterminds Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins. It was a defense that played well with the jury and the magistrates, who did indeed remember overthrowing Edmund Andros. Now, while those men were judged to be guilty of piracy, they were given a light sentence. If they paid 20 marks and re-entered service, they would go free. Kind of free, you know, they'd be put to work in the militia, but it's better than hanging. Now, the defense tried that same tactic with the rest of the crew, but it didn't take. It's here that the question of motivation comes up. Was Thomas Pound, in fact, intending to sail for the West Indies and pillage the French, as he so often claimed? This was a hotly contested point. Witnesses were brought forth, from whose testimony we get most of this story. They all seemed to agree that sailing for the West Indies was indeed Pound's intention, but the prosecution had a persuasive argument. Convenient, isn't it, that so many of this nefarious pirate's victims were given counsel of his plans? Why tell them what he intended and where he intended to sail? Why provide to these men a map for the ships that would inevitably come out after the pirates? Why give them that information at all? Because, they argued, Thomas Pound was lying. He was covering his tracks here. He fabricated this story of sailing for the West Indies that would look good during wartime. He said he would be attacking the French. He did so to mask his true intentions. Then those men brought in a bunch of well-dressed naval officers from there in Boston, men who knew Thomas Pound from his time in the Royal Navy. They all testified to a man that Thomas Pound, a one-time captain under James Stewart, was in fact a Jacobite. It was a damning testimony for Pound. The court agreed, though modern historians do not, that Thomas Pound was a Jacobite pirate intending to sail for Ireland and aid the deposed King James in his bid for the throne. This raises some serious issues. The Nine Years' War was fully on at this point. King Louis of France and King James of Scotland and England were allied against King William of England and the rest of Europe. That brings what's about to happen into question. First, there were a few who were judged not guilty. The two boys, for example, and one man who joined up in Virginia 
and argued pretty convincingly he had no idea what these guys were up to until it was too late. Everyone else, though, was found guilty. The punishment for piracy was always to be hanged by the neck until dead, dead, dead. Now, those sailors from the Falmouth garrison were given clemency for their good service and promise of future service, but everyone else... Well, then, a rumble began to arise from the stands. It intensified into a minor clamor. The magistrate called for order, and then the cause became clear. All of those women who packed the stands dressed in their Sunday best came forward to address the court. Most of them were associated in some way with the men on trial for piracy. They were their mothers and wives and sisters and daughters. However, these women were all respectable members of the community. And there, before the court, they begged with tears in their eyes for clemency. It was a deeply moving scene, and one that was displayed all across the Boston broadsheets. The people there ate it up. But it's an odd scene. I question the... Well, not their honesty. I'm sure they didn't want their family members to die. Not even the legitimacy of their pain, but this was really well organized. What makes it suspicious is that one of the women came forward with a suggestion. Yes, all of their men were guilty. Nobody was denying that. But they did so in an effort to go raid the French like good patriotic Englishmen. They had been deceived, though, by that monster Thomas Pound. He led them astray into his vile Jacobite plots. That was nothing that any of them ever wanted. Please, your honors, please, good people, send them not to the gallows but to fight for their country, as was their intention all along. What a reasonable suggestion. And from the mouths of these lovely and soft-hearted women, who could say no? I suspect that behind the scenes, two interactions took place. First, the fathers of Boston, before the trial, sat around lamenting the loss of so many good, tough fighting men. This was a time of war. The French are on our doorstep and we're just going to hang them? But of course, my lord, some toady would have said, we can't seem to be weak on piracy. Others will follow in their place if we do. Thus they hatched a plan. These honorable men had to be seen as tough on crime, so they had to put forth sentences of death all around. But then there was another scene. In the weeks after the battle, when one of those wives or daughters or mothers or sisters visited her pirate there in the old stone jail, after the visit they were taken aside, into the chambers of one of the grandees there in Boston, who offered them maybe tea. And he explained the situation. Your man is guilty. He will be found guilty. There's no question of it. And we will, as good patriotic Englishmen, be forced to levy a sentence of execution. Then you wait for the tears to subside, and then you strike. There is another option. We're at war, my lady, and your man is a proven fighter. If you, and perhaps one or two other women in your situation, beg the court for clemency, we will agree to spare their lives. They will have to be sent to the front to fight. They will be kept under watch there, but once the war is brought to an end, they will be sent home free men. 
Now, I don't know that any of that happened, but it's a scene that plays in my mind throughout this story. The judges there in Boston deliberated this suggestion and thought it to be imminently possible. The men of the good speed were released, under guard, but alive, in the service of the King of England and the Council of Massachusetts. But that only applied to the regular crewmen. Thomas Pound, notorious Jacobite villain, and his lackey, Thomas Hawkins, were both sentenced to death. But they would not be hanged there in Boston. For crimes of their caliber, men were hanged in London town. The two pirates, their sentence confirmed, were thrown back into the old stone jail to await their ship to England. Next time we're going to follow Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins on their journey all the way to its final bitter end. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, everybody who has donated through the website, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life, all of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight